Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is December 9th, 2021. That was my dog running behind me for anyone who's watching this on video. Um, I am delighted today to be joined by Maya Eschel and Oriel Eisner, two activists who were recently detained by the Israeli police in separate but connected incidents targeting Palestinian solidarity workers in Israel and Palestine. Activists. Uh, their detentions are another piece in the puzzle that we've been talking about a lot lately of Palestinian dispossession and state backed settler violence. And that's what we're going to focus on today, that other piece. Um, very quickly, for bios, Oriel is an American Israeli activist and an organizer with the Center for Jewish Nonviolence. He is based in Jerusalem. I encourage you to check out the Center for Jewish Nonviolence website. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the text that goes with this podcast. Uh, Maya Eschel is an American-Israeli activist currently engaged in daily solidarity work in the South Hebron Hills, and she is based in Tel Aviv. So Maya, Oriel, thank you so much for joining me today, both of you. Um, and apparently my dog is going to be joining throughout the podcast. Again, I'm sorry about that. Um, so I want to ask you guys first off just to introduce yourselves more fully that's the first thing. And sort of just in very, very brief words, what happened happened last week. Um, and maybe you could just very briefly tell us what happened, you know, why, why we're doing this podcast today. Oriel, why don't, why don't you lead off? Sure thing. Thanks. Uh, thanks so much for having us, Lara. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so as my bio said, I'm American-Israeli. I was born in Israel, raised in the U.S., and back and forth a lot over that time. And a year and a half ago, moved to Israel. Um, and in the last seven years, I've been involved in a lot of solidarity work, Jewish doing solidarity work, mostly through the Center for Jewish Nonviolence. And a lot of the focus has been on the South Hebron Hills. Um, so that's a bit of background about me. Last week, um, what happened to myself and uh, my roommates actually in Jerusalem was connected to a campaign about Masafariata, which is a firing zone, firing zone 918 in the south of Run Hills that has been under threat of full-scale expulsion for uh, decades now, really. Back in the early 80s, it was declared a firing zone. So in the last months, a number of activists have been starting to organize awareness around the region because there's a Supreme Court hearing coming up next March that will decide the fate of, of those 12 Palestinian communities. And as a part of that, there were different public awareness activities. Um, <clears throat> and during one of those, uh, the police were, were called by, by right-wingers um, on my roommates late at night, 3.30 in the morning. The police then came to my house, banged down the doors, woke us all up, uh, told us to make sure that everyone was awake, even those who weren't woken up by the banging on the doors, um, started interrogating us on the spot, and had videos from the right-wingers about what had happened. Uh, a few days later, they, they left. They didn't say anything about detention. They didn't say anything about interrogation. They didn't say anything about follow-up. A few days later, they came up with a search warrant to search our house um, and searched all the rooms, flipped everything, emptied drawers, uh, apparently looking for spray paint cans. So the accusation the whole time was that we had to face public property, um, which is a charge that usually brings a fine of a few hundred shekels, uh, a few hundred dollars, about 600 to a thousand shekels. Um, so we had a night raid, a house arrest, and then both myself and a roommate of, of mine were called to an interrogation at the Jerusalem police station 
during that interrogation, we were shown footage, the accusation was repeated. Um, and at the end of the interrogation, I was offered conditions of release. So after an interrogation, you're given conditions, sort of like bail. Um, <clears throat> that means you don't have to have to stay in jail until your court hearing. And the conditions that they offered me was a month ban from Jerusalem, which is where I live and work and was obviously totally absurd. Um, so I didn't accept those conditions, which meant I was arrested until my court hearing. And I spent six months, uh, not six months, six hours uh, in, the, in a holding cell in the Jerusalem prison, uh, at which point they just decided to let me go. And they dropped the conditions and, and let me walk home. Um, yeah, and I think for, for myself, it was uh, pretty shocking the way that they pulled out so many stops to try and intimidate instill fear based on graffiti. Uh, again, something that is just a few hundred dollar fine. Uh, I was not expecting, and I was actually home that whole night and the videos that they showed me, I'm clearly not in that. It's someone with blonde hair, blue eyes, a ponytail, uh, but they were accusing me of, of being that person. Uh, and that same day, and this is where it connects to Maya, there was a, an incident in the South Hebron Hills with a number of Jewish Israeli activists being stopped. So it was a day of of targeting, of intimidation, of of trying to instill fear and stop stop our activities. Thanks. That's a great introduction. And for folks who are listening, I just want to just I'm going to say a say, Ariel, correct me if I'm wrong. All of this ostensibly was about an act of graffiti. And for anybody who's spent any time in Israel, I mean, Tel Aviv has entire neighborhoods where there are graffiti tours. Literally, you can go on a tour of the graffiti in parts of Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, there are whole areas covered with all sorts of graffiti, which isn't to say that graffiti is not defacing public property, but I certainly don't know of any case in the time that I have been living and traveling back and forth between Israel and the US of, of this kind of treatment of people over allegations of an act of graffiti. So sort of extraordinary in that sense, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, um in terms of Israeli media and social media attention, that was evident. It, it went um, semi-viral. A lot of people were talking about it. I was getting messages from friends of mine, community who aren't so involved in this activism, aren't so in the loop, but had heard about this because it was so extraordinary uh, and extreme to have all of this happen because of graffiti. So that brings us over to Maya. Um, I know that the, I saw something in Haaretz where they were arguing that the, the authorities were saying that the targeting of the activists in Jerusalem had nothing to do with the political views of those who had engaged or allegedly engaged in this act of graffiti. Um, that argument didn't seem to hold a lot of water from the get-go, but then paired with the experience of activists in the South Hebron Hills, it makes even in less, less sense. So introduce yourself very briefly and then give us um, what happened to you? Why are we here today? Yeah, um, so thank you again for having us. Um, so I moved to Israel when I was in high school and I was in the military for two years. Um, part of my service was in the West Bank. I served as like a social worker sort of um, for the soldiers on the base. And about a year and a half later, I gave testimony with Breaking the Silence um, and since then, my activism just kind of uh, it just got um, bigger and I started to meet the, um, the people in the left wing um, solidarity movement here in Israel and Palestine. 
And at the moment, I'm spending a lot of time on the ground in the West Bank, in Masafariata, uh, the South Hebron Hills. And regarding this arrest, um, so three of my colleagues, um, I'm at the moment taking part in a program where we're spending a significant amount of time in the South Hebron Hills. Um, we're learning Arabic, we're um, going out to demolitions, we're, we're, we leave, um, we go with the cameras to um, incidents of settler violence, of um, possibly violent military presence, um, and also we follow demolitions, um, and we're there in solidarity to record anything that's going on and to stand in solidarity behind the Palestinians who are leading um, this work and this resistance. And there was a, an incident that I, I am unable to talk about because the case is still open, um, but there was an incident last week, I believe it was Wednesday, um, three of my friends were present um, and they were um, called into the police station right after. We were told that they were going into the station to be um, to give testimony of the incident. And so that was that was what we were prepared for. I drove them there um, and was waiting for them outside of the station about an hour into uh, waiting by the station. Two of two of the guys, two of my friends come out with a undercover cop. He opens the door and he says, give me the keys. You're being detained right now. Um, uh, give me the keys, get out of the car. And so I stop him, I close the door, I call the lawyer, um, but I end up being detained um, for um, obstruction of, um, la, I'm sorry, that I end up being detained because they believe I'm, I'm withholding some evidence. Um, I'm, I stay in the police station with them for about three hours. They, they steal a camera off from my bag and, and they let me go. Um, my friends were, um, uh, charged with obstruction of, uh, of an investigation, um, which was very ridiculous because we're called, we were called into the station to, for them to give testimony. And about an hour in, they changed the game. They turned it into an interrogation. They changed the charges um, on us. And, uh, and while we were in the station, they were on their way to, um, to uh, the home of one of our Palestinian uh, Partners, one of the uh, uh, one of the one of our uh, uh, an activist who we work with often, and they confiscate four of our cameras, our uh, a car that we use to get around the area, um, a jeep that is really great for the field to drive out into the field, um, and someone's computer, um, and it was just they turned a tiny story into a huge deal. Even one of the police officers said to me, he didn't understand why the, his, his colleagues, the other officers were, were making such a small event into such a big deal. Um, and so the three of my friends were arrested. Um, they spent the night in jail um, and uh, were released the next day. Um, it was, it was very, very uh, surreal to hear that Oriel was, um, also in prison, in jail, and and then my friends and I were were on our way to the police station on the same day. We were talking to uh, to our lawyers, and um, it was it was very uh, very ridiculous the whole situation. 
Thanks. And I, I understand that for both of you, this is sensitive. You still have, you, you have fellow activists who are, you know, facing open cases, your cells have open cases. So there's some details you don't want to get into. I would encourage people to read the piece by Oren Ziv in um, 972, which gives a lot more detail of this. I think for people listening, it's, it, it should be emphasized that when Maya, when you refer to an incident, you're not talking about a murder or an arson. You're talking about there was some, there was a an incident, literally, um, which the police came out to, and the result is essentially it's a pretext for for trying to to effectively sort of take down the the solidarity movement in the South Hebron Hills, trying to trying to do as much as possible to to handicap it. That's what it sure looks like, at least. Um, and as far as we all understand, even the the charges. Um, are essentially they're 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 completely unrelated in theory to the activists' work on the ground. So the idea that you're taking a jeep and you're taking cameras is um, it does seem a little opportunistic, at least. Um, both of you have talked about Masafayata and the South Hebron Hills. Obviously, that is the the campaign that connects these two cases. In addition to just the targeting of Israeli activists by the Israeli forces, but that's the campaign. And I'm wondering if you both couldn't talk about that. And, and Maya, maybe uh, starting with you, because you're on the ground there, and then Oriel, you talk, giving some, some further background. Why, you, you mentioned in passing the, the firing zone in 12 communities. I actually want you to go into just a little bit more resolution, because I think for a lot of people listening or watching, they think, well, it's a firing zone. Nobody lives there, right? As opposed to this is an area where people have lived for a very long time, and a firing zone has been posed on top of them. So can you, can you talk about that? Um, maybe Maya, you talk about the the context, the background on the ground, and what Palestinians are doing to to fight this. And Oriel, maybe if you could follow up by talking about the legal efforts and why it's reaching ahead right now. Yeah. Um, so I think the context that I can provide um, at the moment is that this land that these twelve Palestinian villages are living on is their is their maskoret. Uh, um, they they work the land. They use this land to provide a, a salary to feed their families, um, to take their uh, to take their herd out. Um, this the people who have been living in these villages have uh, generations of um, knowledge of how to uh, exist and to thrive on this um, in this territory, and. Um, if they're constantly under threat um, of expulsion and are constantly being um, terrorized by settlers and by the military, um, it makes it very difficult for them to see a future for themselves. And in, um, and in general, the, the overall goal of these settlers, of the military, of the police, is to try to get um, the Palestinians living on the ground um, out of Area C. They want to move them, um, they want the, this land to be as Jewish as possible. Um, and that means um, terrorizing the Palestinians enough to um, force them out of their land and into area A, which is uh, more populated. There's less land for them to work. Um, they don't, um, it will just, it, it changes their, uh, it will uproot their lives and uproot their cultures and the, um, uh, land the knowledge of um, the land and their knowledge of like um, how to be farmers, etc. They it would just really uh, 
כאילו, this, it's ethnic cleansing, this מסאפריאטה, firing, 918 firing zone, it's, it's a very um, forceful form of ethnic cleansing and an erasure of a culture and of a people who have um, been working this land for years. Um, yeah. Thanks. Oriel, do you want to talk about the, the fight against the displacement of Palestinians from this area and also the, the settler violence that the area has witnessed? Yeah. Yeah. And to maybe give, go, go back through the background again, just to, to reiterate the context. The, as Maya was saying, this is, the story of Area C is one of dispossession, is one of pressure to have Palestinians leave in the South Hebron Hills. That's more extreme. And in Firing Zone 918, even more so. So Firing Zone 918 is the southern edge of the West Bank, uh, the southern edge of the South Hebron Hills. And this was essentially trying to annex it through the declaration of the firing zone. It was back in the early 80s declared. Uh, at the time, Ariel Sharon said that its uh, firing zones are a way to prevent Palestinian livelihood. Um, they're not necessarily essential for army training. Um, and to get, I mean, just a specific context for this one, Jenba, one of the villages, um, <clears throat> is one of the longest inhabited Palestinian areas in all of Israel-Palestine. Um, there's history of, of people living there for generations, generations, hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, and since the 80s, they've had no building rights, no access to resources, um, and under constant threat of full-scale ex expulsion. At one point, they were expelled. The Supreme Court actually overturned that and said that the families could return. But it's been a legal battle since the mid-90s around that decision, around that Supreme Court decision. Uh, and the reason it's coming to a head now is because the Supreme Court hearing is in March to make a final decision about these 12 communities and whether or not they can be expelled uh, or they, they're allowed to stay. And because of the way the system works, it's likely the case that it won't be the dramatic full-scale expulsion. Supreme Court decides the next day all the communities are cleared out. It's much more likely to be a situation where the army is given three months, then the, the residents can return for three months, then the army is given six, like some sort of um, agreement where it doesn't look as dramatic. It doesn't sound like expulsion, uh, but it obviously is, and it's obviously destroying the livelihood of all of these communities. So that's why the efforts right now to try building awareness around it so that as that Supreme Court get approach, approaches and after that Supreme Court case, depending on how it plays out, there is attention, there is awareness, there's readiness for people to step in and be involved in many different ways. And as you alluded to, some of those ways are legal, obviously uh, being a court case, there's, there's a legal team that's been working on it for decades. Um, advocacy both within Israel and abroad, trying to raise the attention of folks who are able to pull on some of those levers to put pressure on Israel to prevent this expulsion from happening. Um, and it's also happening at the grassroots level. So a lot of the work that I've been connected to uh, and that our networks, my and mine have been connected to is, is building grassroots awareness, building campaigns that collect stories and videos about what's going on in Masafariyata to share out so that there's higher public awareness. Um, there was a major website put together about what's been going on, telling the story of a number of different residents that's meant to be a base for getting more attention and awareness about what's going on in the firing zone. Um, so we've been involved in a lot of those sorts of campaigns and also building the on the ground infrastructure to, inshallah, this won't be the case, but 
show up and support against expulsion if it gets to that point. So that there are relationships, there's training, there's know-how and shared experience to be defending these homes if it gets to that point. Thank you. So I want to ask you about, well, I want to ask you about settler violence, but I actually want to first talk about the whole idea of solidarity. And Maya, you, you phrased this very, very carefully before, and I think really importantly, you said the role of the activists on the ground is to stand behind the Palestinians who are leading this battle, because it's, 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 it's obviously their equities, right? Can you, um, can you talk about who your partners are and what they are doing? Um, let's, let's come back to you and then we'll come to you, Ariel, to talk about the, the Palestinian role in this and the role of Israeli solidarity actors and what it looks like to be a partner on the ground in this, in this fight and the risks that they're facing. We've, we've actually, we had Basil Adra previously on one of these podcasts where where we do a lot of conversations with that. We didn't want to have, you know, an entire group of, we're going to have a separate conversation with them to really highlight the, the, another side of this, but for right now, we want to talk to you. But can you can you talk about the Palestinians that you work with and, and what that fight is like for them? Um, so again, just to um, remain sensitive and uh, and protect the identities of our Palestinian partners, I can say that I would prefer not to say names, um, but I can say that these are these are people who um, and maybe Oriel can speak to this more, but. Um, and just to say, like I said, Basil's name because he's been on a he's been on a podcast with us, so I know he's okay being out in the open. Yeah, um, but uh, these are people who have been um, um, working in solidarity um, and leading um, in Israeli and international activists for many many years. Um, people who have slowly. Um, I have to say that the fact that um, Israelis and Palestinians are working in solidarity with one another is a very big deal. It's not obvious. Um, Building trust between these communities takes a lot of work, um, a lot of communication. And and I just think it has to be, be named that the fact that our Palestinian partners trust us out there in the field. Um, it's a, if, if you think about what happened in May, last May, there were so many communities here that were like coexistence, people living together, both Israelis and Arabs, Palestinians living in a community that were sort of torn apart. And I think from my understanding, the activists who were present in the South Hebron Hills in May, it, it just made them stronger, um, which says so much about this organizing and so much about this activism in the community that, that has been built um, in the South Hebron Hills over the span of many, many, many years. And um, because of the hard work of uh, dedicated activists. Um, maybe um, Oriel wants to talk more about um, our partners in particular. Um, yeah. Sure. I, I, really, I just want to add, it, it strikes me, you know, listening to these stories, um, you know, in the United States, there is the constant refrain talking about things like the Abraham Accords, the need for, you know, normal relations between Israelis and their Arab neighbors and coexistence. And it, it's remarkable because here you have some extremely organic and, and really thoughtful um, working together of Israelis and Palestinians. But it appears the Israeli government is determined to break it <laughs> as opposed to supporting it because of the kind of coexistence it is. Sorry, Oria, you're up. Um, yeah, I'll just add to that what Maya was saying. I think the South Urban Hills is quite extraordinary in terms of how 
developed and rich the network is. Um, and that extends to Israelis internationals, as Maya said, and it's also within the South of Run Hills. It's a region that has led a lot of really inspiring resistance over the years. Um, and a lot of that resistance has been coordinated regionally. Uh, so, so much of what the Israeli authorities, the occupation, the experience in 48 and 67 entails is fragmentation of Palestinian society. Um, in the South Urban Hills, you see regional efforts and regional coming together. And the activists that we work with are from different communities who show up with each other every single day and are out in the field every single day. <clears throat> and then we're invited into joining them every single day out in the field. But they're, they're out there on their own and have been doing it for a number of years. Um, and yeah, for the last 20, 25, since the, since the late 90s, actually, Israeli activists have been a part of the picture and international activists as well. So we're really stepping into that. Um, and it, it does feel like in this last year, there's a next, there's an up-leveling of what those relationships look like, of what's possible, building on those networks that already exist, that I was, yeah, a part of February to May, that time that Maya was talking about, Maya's a part of now, um, but that network of, of shared resistance is, is growing in pretty extraordinary ways. Yeah, it's also, um, I think it can be said that any time that there is an incident or military presence or settler violence in one village, you have a bunch of people from the next village on cars ready to stand in solidarity with their neighbors. Um, and uh, yeah, it's really uh, very beautiful um, and very um, strong, This the solidarity that exists. And I think to answer the question that you asked earlier about what does solidarity look like for me, I think, um, you know, I think there are so many different forms of activism. There are people who will come to the area for a protest and go back to Tel Aviv. There are people who are um, doing a lot of behind the scenes work, such as um, uh, creating a whole campaign, the Save Masafariata campaign. Um, there are a lot of many different forms of uh, solidarity work, but this um, being there daily um, uh, on the ground and uh, existing and coexisting with people in a way that is very uh, uh, relationship-based. So we're not just there to, um, we are there to uh, uh, join Palestinians in a, at a, when we have a, a protective presence or as a form of rapid response, but that means that we're there. So we're there before a, a horrific event happens or a scary event happens and we're there after. So we all get to talk about it uh, and laugh about it and cry about it or eat together um, afterwards. And this is very, um, it creates this form of community resilience and, uh, and a connection that I haven't experienced before. I have to say that this, this like form of community resilience where, you know, maybe in like the Western world, if something, if uh, people go through a hard time, maybe we'll go to a therapist or we'll talk about it. I feel that here it's, after something scary happens, we need to laugh, we need to eat, we need to be together. Um, and I'm, I'm learning a lot from the people on the ground there, from Palestinians on how to, how to be in community and how to be resilient um, and how to deal with very difficult uh, situations every single day. Um, and so, yeah, our solidarity is really standing behind Palestinians following their lead. Um, yeah, and waiting for, and unfortunately also being there to see if uh, 
if uh, there will be a, an incident. Um, yeah. Thanks. I mean, watching this, the 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 risks that are run by the Palestinian activists are of such greater magnitude. I mean, it's really um, it, it's it's really quite humbling when you think about it. Um, the role that is played by activists in solidarity with Palestinians, taking the lead from them, being there, whether it's as witnesses or standing behind them or standing next to them, um, it's 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 what you talk about resilience and and working as a community it's really it's very powerful and, and very moving um and look i i think the conversation we're having today hopefully brings the story to people who maybe wouldn't listen to it if it was a palestinian story exclusively which is regrettable which is why we're spending a big part of this conversation talking about the palestinians that you're out there in solidarity with because that really is the story um it's worth remembering or reminding people um but speaking of another piece of the story that is actually getting some news. Um, I wanna talk about the settlers um, because solidarity activists are not the only Israelis that are on the ground and the IDF. I um, wanna talk about that in a second as well, but I particularly wanna talk about the settlers. Um, the, the, the altercation that, that resulted in the detention and arrests in the South Hebron Hills last Wednesday um, comes in an area where there have been um, regular incidents of extraordinary um, violence and vandalism and, and harassment, things that I would call terrorism um, that have, have been pretty much unaddressed. Um, and this is on the part of Israelis um, where the Israeli authorities have done little or nothing to stop it. And at times have seemed to actually be um, a party to it. So Oriel, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, and just to, to start where you ended, I think that fact points out what this crackdown against us last week was about, that us as people who are documenting or using graffiti are being targeted, arrested, fined, detained, and settlers who are carrying out horrible attacks, nothing, walk home at the end of the day, um, no, no sort of consequence. But to give some backdrop about that, in, in the last two years in particular in South Hebron Hills, and it's a region where settler violence, actually hilltop youth, that phenomenon started in Chavat Ma'on, other places as well, but back in the 90s. So it's been an area that's experienced settler violence for a long, long time. And for, for folks who are listening, hilltop youth is the name given from the early 90s to a group which identified themselves as youth who went onto hilltops to seize the hilltops because R.L. Sharon told the settlers to seize the hilltops, what's ours is ours, what isn't will become theirs. Um, it is now generally um, treated almost as a code for the more extremist um, and violent groups of settlers in the West Bank, but it's not like a specific movement in that sense. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and, and you could argue that what's happening now and has been happening in the South Hebron Hills in the last year is another iteration of that effort. So a lot of the land in Area C in general in the South Hebron Hills is Israeli declared state land, um, which means that Palestinians, legally speaking, can access, can access it. It's a, it's a daily struggle. It's part of what we do in showing up is call the civil administration and try to adjudicate what land is accessible, what land is not accessible usually doesn't end in the favor of the Palestinians, of course. Um, but because it's state land, it has allowed the settler communities to rent it out or to use it for farming purposes or for shepherding purposes. And in the last year, there have been 
10, 12 new farming outposts that have popped up in the South Urban Hills alone. And from these farming outposts, the settlers have started shepherding, building vineyards. And what that means is encroaching more and more on Palestinian land, on Palestinian shepherding routes, on walking routes between villages. And that's led to a lot more violence and confrontation um, because the people who are going out, the settlers who are going out and setting up these, these encampments are also the most ideological, the most extreme, um, often hilltop youth phenomenon. Uh, so in, in the last year, the, there have been a number of extremely violent attacks, both against individual Palestinian shepherds or small groups of shepherds, but also attacks against entire communities. So the, the village of Tuani has been attacked a number of times from Chabat Ma'on. Umfagara was attacked in, in one of the worst attacks the region has seen just a couple of months ago when settlers from both Chabat Ma'on and Abigail, uh, 50, 60 settlers came into the village and smashed cars, windows, uh, flipped water tanks and solar panels, really a, a horrible, horrible scene. Um, and that sort of thing has become almost regularized, which is saying it, it's, it's hard to believe that that's regular, that that's sort of expected. Now when someone like Basil, some of the other Palestinians we work with gets a phone call that there's something going on, that's a genuine fear every single time because of how often these sorts of things are happening. And at each of these events, these incidents, these attacks, the army and the police have done nothing. When they arrive, they shoot tear gas and sun grenades at Palestinians to try and calm down the situation. Uh, if arrests are made, they're made against the Palestinians who maybe maybe threw stones defending their home, which if you have 60 mass settlers attacking your, your village and you have children, families, your entire livelihoods at risk of being taken and you throw some stones back, it can be thought of as violence, but it also is completely and totally understandable. You're, literally, life is in danger. Uh, yeah, I think it's it's important to emphasize. I mean, this comes up in in articles where it talks. The IDF will say there was a stone throwing incident between, and it's worth reminding people that in the West Bank, these incidents generally take place inside Palestinian villages on Palestinian land where settlers have come. It's not Palestinians invading a, a settlement and throwing stones. It's you know, the, the idea of offense versus defense gets completely lost. And the idea that Palestinians could ever be acting in self-defense is simply not ever on the agenda. Even when we're talking about, we've seen videos, the, the incident you're talking about, there's, there's a lot of videos of it, of what is clearly an aggressive act of people who've come from the outside into a Palestinian area. Um, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, and I think that that media narrative is also what how the army and the police respond. That it's an it's a it's a it's a fight between Palestinians and settlers. Palestinians are throwing stones. If there's footage of that, the Palestinians are arrested, and in later that night, the next day, taken to the police station. Again, the settlers walk home, uh, and nothing happens. And at best, the army is standing by and letting it happen. And at worst. Like I said, they're shooting the tear, tear gas and sun grenades into Palestinian homes, into those villages that are being attacked at the Palestinians who are trying to defend themselves. Um, Maya, can you, I, I don't know if you can talk about this at all. I mean, my sense is that the, the settlers on the ground have in the past and continue to focus on the Israeli solidarity activists um, as well, that that is what, that, 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 that you all are a target. 
whether it's because they're enraged that you're there or they want to stop the solidarity and the document documenting, whatever it is. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about it a lot because they, in the media, they're saying, you know, all of this escalation of violence is due to the Israeli presence. But at the end of the day, they, there's always been violence in this area. It's just there weren't people who can... Uh, who can um, pass the information in, uh, towards the Israeli public or to internationals. Um, but in general, I, I think that we bother them. And there's a reason why there have been so many arrests. Um, the, the police, many of the police officers are themselves settlers. Many of the, uh, the guys in the military are themselves uh, settlers or um, it's a tactic to, when I was in the military, the settlers would uh, come into our base and give us food. And if there was a holiday, they would celebrate with us or we were invited into the settlement. And so um, there's a reason as to why this is all happening. But, you know, I think that their, their target, while we, are, we interest them and we're bothering them a lot, um, they're interested in attacking Palestinians. They're interested in ruining and um, harassing Palestinians on a daily basis. So um, uh, every day there are kids who, because, so there are uh, two villages, Atwani and Tuba. There's a school in Atwani and there are uh, uh, kids living in Tuba that need to get to Atwani to go to school every day. And in order to get there, if they, if they were able to walk there freely, let's say there were no settlements in the area, it couldn't be like a 20 minute walk. But um, because there are two settlements, two very, um, very violent, Chavat Ma'on and Ma'on, um, extreme settlements that um, exist between the two, uh, two uh, villages, the military um, uh, accompanies the kids um, through in order to get to the village. And I think it's important to say that um, there, there's a guy who, there's a man, not a man, he's a boy, he's 17 years old. There's a kid who, um, a Palestinian kid who waits for the, for the, uh, his, for the kids from Tuba to come to Atwani to make sure that they're safe and he walks with them to school. He's not a guy, he's 17, he's a kid. Um, and the settlers are there always. I can't say every morning, but they are there waiting for him to be alone or not to be alone and to attack him. Just the other day, actually, the military was present. Four settlers get out of car and they attack him and, and two of the kids. Um, and when we're there, I, you know, they, they smile. They think we're a joke or they're, they're trying to like uh, provoke us, but they're, they're looking for the Palestinians. Um, yeah. And um I don't, I don't believe that, uh, yeah, you know what, I can't, I, I don't, maybe Oriel can speak more to it. I, I think we're just, we mostly bother them. Um, I don't know about the past uh, attacks of um, settlers on uh, Israeli and American activists. Maybe you can speak to it more. Um, yeah. I mean, we, we've seen a history of we see this in Hebron for years, this idea that the problem isn't that there's tension, the problem is that we have left-wing activists, which really boils down to the problem isn't that there's violence against Palestinians, the problem is that there's people documenting it and reporting it who aren't Palestinian, because Palestinians document and report it all the time, but are ignored. 
And the argument effectively is, well, when Israelis document and report it, it can't be so easily ignored. Therefore, the problem is the Israelis who are documenting and reporting it, which, by the way, aligns quite neatly with the recent act by Israel to declare six Palestinian human rights NGOs that document and report human rights violations as terrorist organizations. Um, but that's a that's another story for another day. Um, I don't know, Oriel, do you have anything you want to add to the this last question or should we move on? Uh, we can move on. So I have two more questions for you. The first one is, to the extent that you're able, what is going to happen now with these cases, uh, if you feel comfortable addressing that? Um, so let's let's just start there. Oriel, why don't you jump in? Um, yeah, so, so the way that these cases usually play out for more minor charges, so like my charge, which is defacing public property, other charges I've had in the past, disobeying a closed military zone, disrupting public order, smaller, smaller sorts of charges. Um, usually what happens is Israel releases you on conditions. Uh, those conditions often include a ban. They're usually not quite as absurd as being banned for a month from the place you live, but there's some sort of ban. And then the system just lets it fizzle out and the case closes and they don't really follow up on it. Um, so that's typically the case and that's what we're hoping for, of course, maybe expecting with my and Maya's cases, which are smaller charges, Maya being, I don't actually know exactly what your charge is, Maya, maybe being a party to a crime, which is something I've been charged for before, um, mine being uh, defacing public property. The other cases, which to reiterate, are, are more severe and are also um, have higher penalties. So it's obstructing obstruction of justice or obstruction of interrogation. The, they were also initially charged with uh, assaulting a settler. The police, that the court then dropped that charge or the police dropped that charge during the court proceeding. And they were also charged with uh, standing by, and I won't get the translation exactly right, but standing by during a crime, which is a charge that is usually only used in incidents, like you said, like murder. Like if, if there, a murder happens and someone stands to the side and doesn't do something, doesn't try to prevent that, then they can be charged with something. So that those are the charges that the other three are facing. Uh, they did have a court hearing. It went all the way to that point of actually having a court hearing and they were released on conditions, but their case is very much still open and they could be called back to court at any moment. Any of us could be called back to court at any moment. Um, but particularly for my case, for Maya's case, what will likely happen is that the Israeli authorities use it as a tactic to shut down what's happening in the moment, to intimidate the activists who are involved in what's going on in that moment, and then let it fizzle out because they don't actually want to follow up on it. They don't, aren't actually interested in pressing those charges. But of course, they can at any moment decide to press those charges and, and intensify their, their crackdown. Thanks. Maya, do you want to add anything to that? No, I think um, just this, this whole uh, incident and the arrests made us a lot more aware of, um, first, it, it showed us that we're doing the work. Uh, the police and the military, they're, they're afraid of our work. We're getting information out. Um, we're standing in solidarity with Palestinians and more and more people are hearing and learning about Masafariyata. Um, so we're, we, are, we, are more, we are becoming more prepared for another uh, situation like this to, to happen. Um, and we're talking about that often. We're hoping to receive, to get the phones of the three uh, people who were arrested back. And we hope to get our Jeep back and our one of the computers and our cameras back. Um, but we're mostly starting to prepare for another 
uh, incident like this to happen, incident. Um, yeah. Well, um, the fact that that you all are undaunted is um, is again it, it, it's inspiring um, and humbling. I want to ask you one last question. This is something that's been on my mind, and I mentioned it to Ariel when we first talked. So you are both Americans. You're you're American Israelis. Um, I believe right now in the United States, the minister Israeli Minister of Diaspora Affairs is traveling around the United States, telling progressive Jewish communities that. Israel and the United States, uh, Israelis and progressive Jewish Americans have everything in common and the Bibi era is over and we should all be getting along and everything's fine. Um, at the very same time, the sons and daughters of the people that they're meeting, <laughs> that he's meeting in the United States um, are being arrested by the Israeli government or detained for solidarity with Palestinians, which is acting in you know, line with the progressive values that, that many, uh, most Jewish Americans hold, I think. Do either of you want to comment on that at all, or what you hope uh, your your compatriots in the United States uh, learn from this, or take from it, or maybe are moved um, to get engaged around this? I'm sorry, I didn't warn either of you guys I was going to ask that question, but it's just been sitting sitting with me as I listen to you. Um, I can I can give a go first. I think, as you alluded to before, the the dynamics of uh, the media, social media, what have you, make it such that Palestinian voices who have been documenting these things, are documenting these things every day, have for years, are not often heard by the Israeli public, American public, other publics. Um, so I think part of what our hope is, my hope is for our presence is that, as you said, if, if I am in the West Bank, if Maya is in the West Bank, two of the others arrested are also Americans, or detained and arrested are also American citizens. If we're there experiencing these things, witnessing them firsthand, documenting them firsthand, and writing our stories, sharing our stories, like right now about what happened, it becomes much, much harder for that narrative, that diaspora ministry narrative to, to hold up. If it's, at this point, relatively easy for them to discount Palestinian self-defense, Palestinian claims of being attacked, Palestinian complaints about home demolitions. Um, once it starts coming from the very people that they're trying to talk to, the American Jewish community, the Israeli Jewish community, um, it becomes that much harder to ignore. So that's that's the hope, is that this can provide uh, a counterbalance, a counterweight to, to the Israeli Hasmara network, to the diaspora minister traveling around and trying to talk about how wonderful everything is. Um, and I do think it's changing as, as Maya was saying, I think that at this point, the network of people who are sharing these messages, sharing what's going on, the fact that we're here right now does mean that what's happening every single day, what's going on every single day and stuff and Israel is succeeding to stuff under the rug um, is, is starting to make it out and is not going passing quietly in the way that it has in the past. Maya, you get the last word. Actually, I, I, f I felt like you, I felt that he really said everything. Um, yeah. Well, I am so grateful. To, I'm happy listening to both of you. Um, you know, what you are doing. I say this as a, as, a, as a Jewish American who for years when people have talked about solidarity, what they've meant, I think, 
are, you know, things like, you know, people to people, seeds of peace, which is lovely and makes people feel good. And actually in, it doesn't, it, it isn't this, it isn't solidarity. Solidarity is putting yourself out there. It's letting Palestinians lead. It's standing with them. It's standing, continuing to stand with them when it gets difficult and it's amplifying their grievances. It's, it's standing with their pain and trying to do everything you can to fight to, to change that. And it is so inspiring and so humbling. And I, I thank you so much for being with us today. So we're going to end here. Thank you again, Maya and Oriel, for our conversation today. Um, we will include with this podcast links to um, some of the work, some of the stuff that's come out about the Palestinian um, activists on the ground. We have Basil's podcast for sure. Um, we're going to put some articles about what's actually happened, uh, which go into a little more detail on some of the, the charges and whatnot. Um, we'll also put down background on what's happening um, with the uh, firing zone and the farming outposts so people can really, um, hopefully, are, are moved to dig into this a little deeper. I really hope they are. So I want to thank you. I want to thank our listeners, people who are tuning in to this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Um, you can visit our website, www.fmep.org, to subscribe to the podcast, which we have weekly, at least, um, episodes, which are all fantastic. You can subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. Um, I'm Laura Friedman. Thank you so much. And I look forward to our next episode. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us, Laura.